Hello, welcome back everyone. So Casey, today, it's actually a pretty interesting conversation we're about to have because here on our campus, we're finally finished building our new Health and Human Services building. Uh-huh. So things are coming full circle for the podcast. Yeah, so today we're talking about um, healthcare, careers in healthcare, self-care, sort of journeys to um, you know, how folks get to where they are. Also, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about because we haven't gone there yet. And our guest today um, is one of my very favorite people on the planet, uh, Denise Frizelka, who is a good friend of mine from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and she's a certified nurse midwife. She has her doctorate also in nursing. So she's nurse doctor, Denise. I like <laughs> to say, I don't know if that's the, <laughs> the, the correct term. Um, but she's brilliant, compassionate, interesting, funny, just delightful. So Denise, dear friend, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Very much. Excited to be here. So, Casey, tell us a little bit about how you two know each other. Oh, you actually don't know this, Jamal. I do not know this. Okay, so you, uh, if I had li- I came up with a list of like, did we meet at A, you know, uh, in a class, B, um, at a bar, C, playing uh, women's tackle football in Madison, Wisconsin on a team called the Cougars. Oh, which rawr. would you say? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we met playing tackle football. Yeah, I was going to guess tackle that. Football. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Denise, isn't it funny to think, I mean, this was 10 years ago now. Because that that's we too both, specific. We it had, had very to short football careers. We did. We did. We realized um, oh, I'm not much of a footballer, <laughs> not much of a baller at all, actually. Um, so, um, it, it. wow, I can't believe it's been that long. But yes, I do occasionally see the picture of my uniform. Those did look pretty nice, though. But so many of my friendships in Madison um, came from that football team. So it was uh-huh. well worth joining. Yeah, Denise and I, you know, not the strongest players on the team. Well, I'll say that. Yeah, I was pretty bad, actually. <laughs> Didn't you break your foot just in practice sort of walking? Yeah, no, I did. I did. I was running across doing some ridiculous stunt. And um, yeah, I did roll it and broke my foot. Yeah. That's a, a career ending. Uh, ended my career. That's def- a career ending <laughs> injury there. Uh, yeah, but that was one of those things where, um, you know, after after my partner and I had moved to to Madison from New Mexico, we, you know, when we we talked a lot about sort of people's journeys, um, you know, in terms of of career, in terms of friendship, um, and when we moved to Madison, we didn't we didn't have jobs. Uh, we also didn't have friends. So after a few months of like really struggling to like sort of get into community and to meet people, I saw this ad for like football tryouts for women's tackle football. I'm not a contact sport person. I'm not a very aggressive person. Um, I'm good at like running away from people trying to tackle me. Okay. My specialty. That's a skill. (laughs) But but, uh, I was like, you know what? What else do I have to do? You know, it's just sort of a, let me, maybe this is a, a way to meet people. And truly it was, I... You know, I'm so grateful that I did that because it did lead to some of um, 
you know, my most treasured friendships and it sort of broke the seal. Then we mm. have friends after that. It's like once you have a few right. gateway friends and you can sort of break in. But our relationship, Denise, uh, we were sort of the two academics um, right, right. on the team and sort of without knowing that at, at first. Um, but we actually wrote our dissertations um, very much together, like in mm. the same physical space together. Yes. Um, yes. Which is where we really got to know each other more in terms of, you know, our our, our work, academic work, our, our teaching work. In your case, you know, your nursing and midwifery work. Correct. Correct. Yes. That I don't even remember how we made that connection, but um, it certainly was a valuable part of finishing my dissertation anyway, even though you finished way before me. But um, it was very helpful to have those meeting spaces, those third spaces in a way mm. that we could complete that. So that was uh, that was very helpful. Yeah, we. Yeah. I mean, you, the one thing that getting a, a PhD can be really lonely. Mm. Getting any any graduate that. degree yeah. can be really lonely, and it's so important. I mean, we're in completely different fields. Like Denise is doing research different about different schools, even yeah, different universities, gestational diabetes. But you know, we also both have to spend enormous amounts of time writing, and you could do that alone, or you could do that alone together. Boom. With somebody else when you pack a lunch and go to the public library <laughs> for 12 hours. <laughs> right, and, right. Or camp out, frankly, in any place all over town. Any place. Yeah, yeah, we did have to switch it up a little bit to be a little more interesting. But right. Without, you know, without that social support, I, you know, I, I would stay at home and probably do nothing and get nothing done. Um, mm -hmm. So that was really important. Which is really just exactly a, what midwifery is, to tell you the truth. Oh yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just standing by and being supportive of. You know, of, well. I also I feel very grateful that we have a number of friends who are midwives. It seems like we, I don't know, we travel in circles with, <coughs> excuse me, with midwives. And someone told me recently that the that word actually means with women. It does. Oh yeah, I did not know mm -hmm. that. Yes, it absolutely does. And so, okay, so, you know, it really struck me how different our, in some ways at least, our, our lines of work are. So when we would get together at a coffee shop or at a library, you know, I'm tired because what? I got six hours of sleep instead of eight, you know. But Denise <laughs> is coming to write after working a 24-hour on-call shift, Ooh. delivering babies, um, and then coming <laughs> in and then trying to, and, you know, writing all our post-it notes and everything else um, right 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 for, for eight hours and it just was like and experiencing whatever those births were like some easy right. some not um, and being with women while this is happening and so I I was always so um, I don't know just enamored of that of that world and you know in another lifetime I might be also a nurse um, but I also think that I romanticize it so would you share with us, um, Denise, like what sort of what took you on this path? Did you always know you wanted to go into healthcare, into midwifery, into nursing, or how did that how that happen for you? No, actually, I I did not. Um, I I graduated from high school and um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I actually became a nanny for um, a certified nurse midwife in the really small town that I lived. Um, there, I'd never even heard of what a nurse midwife was, um, but it was really my introduction to the field. And then subsequently, um, my job with that midwife, who's also my dearest mentor, um, 
uh, is ended with the birth of her third son. And that birth was actually at home. And that was the first birth that I attended as a support person for her other two children um, while she was in labor. And then three days later, I was on the plane to Switzerland to take um, a nanny job. And when I arrived there, I found out that the um, woman, the, the family that I was going to stay with, that she was also a nurse midwife. And oh. I'm like, like, what is like happening here? Uh, like, I've never even heard of midwives before, you know, my first nanny job. And then here I'm arriving in another country and, and I'm working for a nurse midwife in the same type of, you know, role as a nanny. Um, and so it was during that year that I was there that I, it just really kind of grew within me, this calling. And it, um, it seemed, you know, it, it seemed that that was really the only path that I was supposed to take. And then I went on a spiritual pilgrimage and it, it was like, boom, it was like, this is what you're doing. So I then pursued um, looking at what it would be like to become a midwife in Switzerland, which I was dearly in love with that country versus returning back to the United States. And it just seemed more feasible to return back to the United States to become a nurse midwife, which meant that I needed to become a nurse first and then a midwife. Huh. It's well, not the only way that you become can become a midwife, you know, in the United States, you can just, you can become a midwife, but the most common way to do it. Um, the most, the, the largest number of midwives in the United States are first nurses and then certified as nurse midwives. Huh. I, so at this point, at this point, how, I mean, how long have you been in the field? I used, I remember in, in Madison, I would, I would, I mean, I'm proud of you and the work that you do. And I just think it's like truly amazing. So I'd be like, this is my friend, Denise. She has delivered <laughs> over 900 babies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, let's see. So I finished nursing school in 1993 and then I finished midwifery school in 97 um, after I worked as a nurse for a couple years. So um, 25 years actually mm. as a midwife wow. and then not on a few more years as a nurse. So next year I'll be, have been a nurse for 30 years. Wow. Yes, I know. I know. Let's not talk about it. You have such a youthful, um, youthful spirit and face yes. <laughs> for those listening. Oh, it's true. I can't imagine. I just don't know what I would have done if I wouldn't have been a nurse or a midwife. Huh. I just, I just can't imagine it. So, so what, um, you know, in your, in your many years of experience, I mean, what have you, what have you learned or what have you seen? What have, what's changed? I'm asking you three different questions. Um, but, you know, I think about my own healthcare experiences and my partner's healthcare experiences um, and just about nurses in general um, and how often when I have not felt perhaps heard or seen by doctors, I usually have at least in an empathetic, caring sense by a nurse, um, that's often been um, a really like sort of the best part of even difficult healthcare experiences. So I always really, um, you know, appreciate the work that nurses do. And I, and I know that, that um, you know, they're sort of stuck in the middle sometimes. Um, and there are challenges to being a nurse that perhaps they're look different from being a doctor. So Right, right. For those of us who don't work in healthcare or for people who are considering going into healthcare, like what are some things that, that I guess those of us on the, on the outside or who are coming in, like what, what don't we know? Well, I would, there's two, yes, you're asking a few different questions, but um, 
you're asking about nursing and then you're asking about midwifery and there are some parallels between the two. Uh Um, what I would say first about, um, nursing is that it's, it's, um, it's internationally known as a, you know, really like trusted profession. Um, for the most part, it's very respected and, you know, you, you really assume an identity when you're a nurse. Um, when people say, I'm a nurse. Um, people are like, oh, you're a nurse. And they, um, it helps to jog their memories about all the care that they received by nurses, most of which are very positive. Uh-huh. Now, not all. Obviously, there's, there's always some that are negative um, with any profession, but most people are like, wow, you're a nurse. And, and it just assumes this level of authority um, when you kind of speak from the, from the perspective of a nurse. On the opposite end of the spectrum, when people, when you say, when I say that I'm a midwife, um, they're like, oh, what's a midwife? And there's like all these ideas about what midwifery is, which is a funny word in and of themselves. And people are like, what's that? But when when you say you're a midwife, it 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 especially in the United States, it mostly conjures up the idea of oh, you deliver babies at home. And so it's a very it's different. It's almost it's 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 looked at very differently because the public perception is is very different about or the awareness of what a midwife is is very different about 9% of deliveries in the United States are done by by midwives um so it's not a large amount um but it's you know it's not it's, nothing it is not it's nothing relevant. It's, it's, it is not nothing. Um, and it really depends on the state, whether you have, there's a large midwifery presence, um, or not like Alaska, there's a, the largest per capita number of deliveries are done by midwives, Alabama, it's hardly ever heard of, you know, Hmm. you know, New Mexico is very high with, um, midwifery presence and, um, but it just really depends on the state. Now you have Call the Midwife, which is a show that people are beginning to understand more mm. about what midwives are. But again, it's rarely in the setting of, you know, delivering in a hospital where most of midwife certified nurse midwife attended deliveries are a majority are done in hospitals, although they can be done in birth centers, freestanding birth centers or at home as well. So nursing and midwifery is very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. So what is a, a day in the life look like then? Um, in the day, a day in the life of a, a midwife. Yes. Typically. Okay. So a day in the life of a certified nurse midwife, which is somebody who has received education and training as a nurse first, a registered nurse, and, um, has usually, um, has a bachelor, I'm sorry, has now the requirements are a master's or a doctorate in nursing practice, a DNP, then at the same time, um, be, um, does their midwifery education. So Certified nurse midwives typically will deliver, will work in a clinic, um, which can be affiliated with private practices or hospitals or teaching centers, and they will typically then attend births in a hospital. Um, but other nurse midwives can work in a freestanding birth center, so they'll, it'll be a, it's not associated with a hospital, and um, and then they often have relationships with hospitals if they, in the case that they would need to transfer patients in for care. But it involves, I mean, the clinic work involves not only just working with pregnant people. Um, and I, I think it's important to say, you know, no longer pregnant women, but pregnant yeah. people. Um, I think that's an important thing that needs to be recognized now. Um, but also it, we work with pregnancy, but also 
with care through the lifespan of, you know, of, of women or of um, any type of gender care. Um, and that involves anything from, you know, natural family planning, planning for a pregnancy or birth or prevention of a pregnancy or birth. Um, and it involves screening for sexually transmitted diseases. It involves screening for any type of reproductive health organs, breast cancer, um, cervical cancer, you know, all those, all those things, as well as, you know, we do work with um, primary care needs. So depression or thyroid issues um, or a number of things. So it's, it's, um, it's often just understood as being related to pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and that's it, but it's really full scope practice, you know? Mm. So sometimes you're in the clinic and it's, you know, a day in the life is like, you're seeing a number of patients in, in for clinical visits. Right, right, right. And then other shifts Um, you're at the hospital. That's the day in my life, um, uh-huh. just depending on the type of practice that you work with. Sure. Some people are juggling both, running from the clinic to the hospital, oh, but wow. we work in a big enough practice where there's specific midwives designated to work in the hospital mm. for, for anything that comes in and other ones that are designated to work in the clinic for a certain day. So that could be a day shift or night shift or 24-hour call shifts um, at the hospital. <laughs> it sounds very exciting. That's- it, it, you know what it, it is for the most part, a very exciting, happy experience, but I'm not going to lie. If I, <laughs> if I said it wasn't completely exhausting sometimes mm-hmm. and, and it's not just exhausting because the hours of the day that you're putting in, but every person that crosses your path that you're taking care of, it requires, um, and it deserves a lot of listening, Yeah, listening to the individual needs that people have. There's no cookie cutter approach, which is, I think, often, if I dare say so, the difference between midwifery and um, care that's provided by physicians, because we do devote extra time. And um, it's important to really look at very, very individualized care. Interesting. And and you're also, um, you know, engaging with people, interacting with people and their partners sometimes. Right. um, Absolutely. It's it's all part of the... (laughs) Right. In the most, some of the most intense um, and vulnerable moments Absolutely. of their lives. So it's not just yeah. like you're listening on any given day. It's, it's during this very um, sort of heightened right. part of their lives. You know, it, it's certainly, okay. The labor and delivery experience that people have is also, it, it's oh, absolutely like the most difficult thing that people go through. Um, whether you're the person that's going through labor and delivering or the partner that's there supporting um, it's because you're seeing your, you know, your partner that's going through, you know, painful experiences, but also very transformational for better or for worse. And it's important to, you know, protect the birth experience in any way, shape or form and respect that. But, you know, every day that someone comes into the clinic, they're coming, they're coming to make sure everything is okay. And there's a lot of anxiety that's worked into that. Like, is my baby okay? Is, Am I okay? But there's also, it's the one time in, in their life um, that they're actually able to get information about their bodies, about like what they're feeling. Is it normal? And that's just physical. It's emotional. It's like so many things that they bring to a clinic setting, you know, and it's, it's a short amount of time that they get to spend, but it's often, it's the time to dispel myths or mm. things that they heard from their 
from their mothers or their aunties or their anybody. And some of those things are like physiologically not at all (laughs) accurate. And, you know, it's important to balance, you know, delicately teach about how this is what you may have heard. And like culturally you may, you know, you've been taught to believe this, but you know, anatomically or physiologically, this isn't quite exactly how it works out. So you have to, you know, honor the cultural importance and also kind of dismantle some of the things that may lead to behaviors or things that might not be as healthy for them. Hmm. We've been talking, um, I don't know if this episode will come out after the the menstruation matters conversation. We'll see. Um, But we've been talking about how little education there is about, um, you know, women's bodies, about reproduction. And I'm saying women, but folks, you know, just actually reproductive health in general, but particularly, um, you know, knowledge around reproduction. And and just like what huge gaps um, there are. Yeah, disparities in the K-12 system around health. Education. Oh, yeah. And and what, you know, some people learn some things in school at, of different qualities and some people don't. All the myths. And yes. all the myths. So what are some of the things that that, um, that you think, and, and I'm also learning a lot myself too. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, I will have a baby. We have a, a midwifery practice. Um, and during this process of pregnancy, I have learned so much. And I think of myself, obviously, as a, as a well, well-educated. I'm well-educated and well-informed. And and some of my best friends are midwives. So, um, and still, it just, um, it just strikes me. And I suppose that it's also, uh, you know, the kind of society that we're in and what we prioritize over other things. But um, anyway, I've been sort of shocked by the, how little I have known as someone you know, who was assigned female at birth, how little I knew about my own body, let alone my partners. But what are some things that, that, you know, as as societally that you think um, we're missing or what are some of these myths that you think folks don't know? Oh, can I just, let me just go back to what Jamil said about like the difference um, or the K through 12 or um, you, you know, you referenced that, but like every, Oh, if I could say the disparity in education Mm -hmm. Mm. from families beginning from, you know, birth onward and how you view bodies itself. Um, and then how you're introduced to information either from families or from the, you know, school systems is just, it's so very, very variable, (laughs) variable. It's, um, it's really insane. And there's no focus on really uh, how bodies work as much as the one small thing is like STD prevention or how not to get pregnant. And, and if we would just start at the very beginning and say, this is how your body works. And this, these are your body parts. And, um, when you bring two people together, this is how things can, you know, work in your body. You know, it's, 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 oh, it's kind of amazing. I think it needs to be all started all over again, yeah. but we live, we also live in the United States where it's a very prudish, uh, world mm. <laughs> that we live in. It's, uh, it's very Puritan in a way it has very historical, you know, um, basis in, in Puritan values. So people don't talk about bodies, mm. you know? Um, and so I think, uh, so it's, that would be like a solution to start all over, but whoa. 
that would be like quite the challenge. A massive cultural um, shift. Yes. A massive cultural shift. Like educational very, overhaul. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. It's very different in Europe. Like when I was there, it's it's a very different approach. Bodies are just bodies. Like, you know, a body is just a body. And it's um, you know, you can see people um that don't have this need to just be like hiding and covering up huh. and and therefore like not knowing what is going on with their own bodies. Like menstruation itself, you referred to that. Like yeah. that is is such that is such either celebrated or hidden uh-huh. in so many cultures. And it it varies so much. Um so as far as like certain myths, I think um like a lot of times you see like things that you can do and can't do in pregnancy or things that like lead to greater fertility or less fertility or things that lead right. will cause labor to, to call to come on based on certain foods that you eat, you know, or that you can't, um, some people believe you can't get pregnant if you're breastfeeding, like all those things are, you know, quite different among, you know, among different people. Huh. So like if, yeah, uh, I think it would be like, it's hard to kind of remember specific ones until it hits you in the clinic setting. But right. um, let me turn the question on you, Casey. What's one thing that you were totally um, blown away by, like related to pregnancy? Well, okay. So <clears throat> of course now I'm drawing a blank too, but Guess I, that I, I <laughs> <laughs> you're making me cough. Um, <laughs> I mean, one thing is, or Jamil, you can answer this too. Yeah, we should both answer this. Well, you know, I can think of a lot of different things that comes to mind around pregnancy. You know, you bring up foods. I hear, you know, eating spicy food may yeah. cause the baby to come early. Um, I just heard someone say that last week. I heard, I've heard having a drink will cause a baby to come early. Um, having sex will cause a baby to come. Like if you're trying to trigger birth, like have sex go on a long walk or a run, like some type of physical activity will um, make the baby come. Those are some hot ones that come to my mind mm. that I hear some all of the those time. Are true. Some oh. Of those are true. Oh yeah, do tell. Do tell. Okay, do okay, tell. Okay. Okay. First of all, let's talk about the sex one. Okay. Like, okay. If you're talking about sex and like trying to get a baby to come, let's say you're just I'm so over being pregnant. And you know, like one should not try to get a baby to come early because uh, I'll just add that there's so much like lung development and brain development that happens at the end. So like, I'm sorry, but like simple discomfort, like I'm sick of being pregnant, isn't a good reason to get a baby to come. Mm-hmm. Let's say the baby is, you know, term now 40 weeks or more. And you're just like, okay, I I'm, I'm, I've had it. Um, sex, sex can, in, in a couple of different ways, um, help for a baby to come that was just about ready to come anyway, like mm. just needed a little bit of a jump start. And there's two parts about that. One is um, a, it, a really good dose of semen has um, has a good amount of prostaglandins in it. And prostaglandins are one of the things that's used to, um, with your own body produces it to cause labor to start, to cause mm. your cervix to ripen up. And to kind of be ready when you have good contractions to be like, okay, I'm ready. I can respond to good contractions. So, and that's one of the things that's used like to induce labor is, you know, a synthetic form of, of, um, you know, of, of prostaglandins, but the other part is orgasms. So um, either one um, I say, go for it, but 
like make sure it's it's worth it and make sure you have some super good orgasms like you can like, <laughs> have a male partner or a partner who has the ability to um you know give you a good dose of semen fine but also orgasms helps to allow the uterus to contract mm. and that's the other part of going into labor so you know if it's comfortable for the person that's um going to have a baby um yeah sex does work now does exercise work in the same way all right let me talk about exercise so people are like um yeah I, i've been i i want my baby to come i uh so i'm going on a ton of walks every day and i'm like hmm yeah that will cause you to be tired <laughs> um but the uterus is an involuntary muscle and it does not respond to exercise it does respond to the other things i just talked about but exercise in and of itself will help the baby to further engage in the pelvis, the gravity, the up and down. Let's say you're walking. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to fit my head into this pelvis in a better way. Mm. Um, so that helps that part. But honestly, it does not bring on contractions. It physiologically does not work that way. Um, it's, it's good not to be sedentary the last, you know, the, the entire pregnancy, one should exercise. I would say it's a very good recommendation. Mm -hmm. So, but it doesn't actually put people into labor. Mm. You know, does mm. that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Now, 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 I think that people think that exercise puts you into labor because if you are having contractions and you're walking, it can help you can feel them stronger, but oh. it doesn't really make them stronger. Interesting. It's really kind of people's, you know, sensations more than anything. Like people are like, if I, if I move in bed, if I turn in bed, I'm going to have a contraction. I'm like, you were always going to have the contraction because you can't control whether you have the contraction or not. It's like your heart. You can't control whether it, it beats. Otherwise you'd fall asleep and you'd die. Right. So, but if you, if you, you were already going to have that contraction and just turning over just made you feel it in a different way. Huh. Mm. I think, you know, this is also true in witnessing, um, you know, my sister and, and other friends give birth. I realize like how much um, there is, especially in non-midwifery context, like how much uh, around childbirth is, is governed by fear. Um, oh, how sure. many, how many C-sections, how many like, oh, we have to give you Pitocin. We have to... Um, induce you because of xyz and then conversations that we had later where you said oh actually no a baby can you know a baby that was not actually necessary and um so there was a lot that i realized like that we just sort of inherently trust like doctors and also have a lot of fear you know of course going into um childbirth and then also you know in i guess one one thing about you know witnessing having a, a pregnant partner um, in the context of all of these um, anti-abortion laws has really shown me um, how, what a, I didn't, I mean, seeing pregnancy from the start and from before the start up close, <laughs> I just cannot imagine somebody for, anybody being forced to go through that, um, especially when we had some difficult times Um and seeing different possibilities for what might have happened that didn't. Um, and to think that, you know, I just, just these laws demonstrate a lack of understanding about how the body works, I think, mm -hmm. um, in yeah. terms of healthcare. Um, and just like, just things like, 
you know, like I didn't really understand that the placenta is like an organ, for example, mm-hmm. or I mean, there's so many things um, and I, and, and more, you know, as, as we get closer. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we're starting classes this month. Oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, just how much, you know, and, and also th- this, this probably speaks to the prudish culture of the United States too, because that first trimester is, it's kind of, I mean, it's a harrowing, can be a harrowing time and very, very. miscarriage is so common and it was only that when we were dealing with stuff or experiencing things that we then found out that so many people we know have experienced their own versions of this um, or it had miscarriages or, you know, uh, were throwing up 24 hours a day for months uh, that it was only after we were experiencing it that they even shared about that. And these are not acquaintances. Mm-hmm. These are close friends. So just like how much um, people keep to themselves and don't talk about Wow. You have said so many things and I like, oh, there's so many things that we could talk about. Um, so um, the last part is is very true that, again, we are very people are either super uber transparent about everything about their lives, especially with social media, for better or for worse. Sometimes you just don't want to know about all those things um, and or it's very secretive. Um, and the it's when you talk about pregnancy loss, um, or, you know, miscarriages, um, it's very similar to how, like the issues of mental health are dealt with. Hmm. Like there's a lot of secrecy, like loss and anything that's viewed as weak, like depression or anxiety is so, so secretive. But, um, Again, it's also like back to how the body works and understanding all the differences and all the many variables and in, in how it works. Um, that w- it would be a great solution for any of the, the, the laws that we're dealing with being overturned um, or just all, all back to the basics. Right. Where do we start? Right. Um, but it's, yeah, pregnancy, you know, one in every three pregnancies usually ends in a loss of some, some form. Um, usually it is in the first trimester, the first, you know, 12, 13 weeks, because it takes so many perfect uh, things setting up to, you know, to create a pregnancy that's going to be sustained um, mm-hmm. and maintained over long term as far as hormones and genetics and, you know, how the chromosomal influences occur and um, just other outside environmental things related to stress and, you know, how, how able the body is to support the pregnancy, you know, even not related to hormones. Um, there, it's a very, it's a very precious ecosystem. Right. Yeah. Um, Be protected. Often I hear, you know, after a person um, has a miscarriage, they tend to blame themselves thinking that there's something wrong with them, Mm. possibly because we don't, talk enough about miscarriages and how often they occur and some of the reasons of why they occur. I'm not sure if any, either of you have seen the Ali Wong special. The she, newest one? It's one of them. I believe it was the second one. She has a three. She's pregnant? Yeah, she's pregnant <laughs> in all of them. I absolutely love her. They're Netflix specials. And in one of them, she tells the story of how she has a miscarriage mm. and how her mom's like, well, that happens all the time. It's like losing a flip-flop. And she talks about how she receives a miscarriage bike as a gift 
afterwards and she does this whole special like normalizing miscarriages and talking about that experience for millions of listeners to hear i think that that is brilliant um and i think we need to destigmatize all of this this stuff but like understanding why in the body frankly anything happens as well as pregnancy um yeah but i think you know as someone who has long wanted a family um we have expectations and hopes and dreams and all that kind of stuff. And it, you know, as soon as somebody finds out they're pregnant, assuming it's somebody like who wants to have a child, then you start like, it's almost involuntary. You sort of map out your whole life, plan all of this stuff. Like you imagine this whole thing, even before you've met this, you know, burgeoning perhaps being. And so losing that is not just, um, I mean, it's losing that whole vision Mm. where it can be. Um, So that's the part that um, I think is the most challenging. And also um, physically. And then the stress of like trying to get pregnant again and then fear that it's going to happen again. And it did it it something that I did. If I hadn't done this, would I still have a baby? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, shame and blame like that Jamil referred to and loss that you referred to, those are just, um, I mean, we're a shame and blame society. Yes, frankly. We are. Um, like every, somebody's always at fault. We have a litigious society, which makes obstetrics and midwifery care in the United States very difficult. Mm. And then we have this, you know, this own, you know, socialized and internally built need to find blame. Mm. Um, and really like when people have, you know, have a miscarriage, I, I really try to emphasize that this is a loss. It's a real loss. It doesn't matter how early it happened. And it's, and it's something that you can feel grief about, like you're going to have different stages of grief, whether you planned on having this pregnancy, whether you intended it, sure. or whether it was just something that happened. Well, it never just happens. But um, whether it's something that happened, and, um, you know, you're coming to terms with or whether it's something that you planned 25 years for, mm-hmm. okay, maybe not quite as many. Um, but it's it's still a loss at whatever gestational age the pregnancy does end, if it does end, and it's really important to honor like everything that's involved with that. But we, again, I feel like as a society, we don't know what to say to people if they have a miscarriage. And so people hide it. Right. And we don't know how common it is, but still it's a loss. It doesn't matter how common it is, you know? Yeah. Um, And I, I just, I think people are scared to talk about loss and they don't know what to say to people if they're suffering mm-hmm. or if, you know, if they're hurting in, in any way, shape or form. Um, so loss and then the shame and, and guilt thing is just, it's just too much. So dismantling that would be amazing. So having um, the Netflix, you know, I, I didn't watch it. Sorry. I don't. You should. I highly recommend. Okay. Okay. I'm going to write it busy, down. And do it's that. too busy. No, I mean, sometimes I find myself watching other things to, to check out that are much more mindless. So oh, uh-huh. Let's admit that because that's part of a coping strategy or a way to self-care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yes. Uh, I think there's so many, so many parts of all this is complex human beings that we just don't address. Yeah. We just don't honor. And um, <sighs> there's nothing that's more vulnerable than birth or death. Sure. Mm. And it's all, both of those are wrapped up in um, huge amounts of fear and fear that could be, you know, helped to be alleviated by just, listening and talking and learning and educating. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I've been hearing, um, 
lately just about the uh, people who are death doulas. Yes, um, yes, yes. That's my next job. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you know, I love, I love death and I, I love birth so much, mm-hmm. but I think I love death more. Interesting. Oh, interest. That's very oh, interesting. Jamil is very interested in, in, in death. death. Yes, and burials. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's like um, I've been to, I've worked in Haiti and I worked in, in Guatemala and I had these, and I, and of course I live in the United States and then I lived in Switzerland. So I've had this opportunity to see how different cultures deal with death. And it's very, I've, I've had a lot of things that have left an imprint like on my soul about it, like how, um, how it's so similar to birth, except Mm. that what you're looking at is not a new entry into life and all the usual excitement about that. Um, but there's, but also the passage of what people go through as they're leaving this life and, you know, moving on and how it can be either a very beautiful, protected, respected, or it's almost like people are left or neglected. And it's, they're both very beautiful in ways um, and, or, or also very traumatic. So the coming and going in life is, uh, I think it's super rich. It's, it's kind of amazing. And, I'd love to see how different cultures kind of address it. Like, um, like in Haiti, I got to tell you the story if you don't mind. Like, oh no, we do not mind. But what happens in Haiti is um, I just, I, I was like, whoa, um, I was walking down the street and rule, you know, rule very, very poor Haiti. Um, and I was, I came upon this like festival, like this party and there's, they don't, they don't really have a lot of electricity there in most places. And um, I just saw this table and people were sitting around the table and, and um, they're having this, what looked like a party. And I kind of inquired as to what was going on. And they said, Oh, so-and-so died a couple days ago. And um, what they do is they um, I'm not speaking for all the culture of Haiti, just my experience of what I saw. Uh-huh. Um, so definitely not an expert, but they actually invite the person that has died to the table uh-huh. and they sit them at the table and they, have a last kind of party with them celebrating before they, you know, bury them. So it was like, I was like, wow, this is just not something that we, that I've ever been, you know, have experienced before. And then I also had a a mom, I worked in Haiti directing a birth center. So we had one of our moms that died and um, in childbirth. And um, so I, I wanted to attend the funeral. They invited me to attend the funeral. And that was a very different, very, very amazing life experience as well. People are very, um, it it was perhaps the only time that I feel like I experienced cultural shock is just the response, the physical, the visceral response that Mm. people have to sending off their loved ones into the next realm. Um, But both, again, birth and death are, are both pretty amazing things. Yeah, I think, you know, that you're making me think about just the the prudish or Puritan or um, just sort of like tight culture in the U.S. and just how many funerals are, they're, they're tight. tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, some are. Some. I have been to a lot that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I've been dying to have a episode about death and burials. So hopefully you know, you this can that. lead you to this. that for season five. <laughs> um, hopefully one day we could have that because there's a lot to unpack there. Right, right, right. I, I, somewhere in one of my phones or cameras, I have um, in Haiti when I went to that funeral, they grabbed my phone, knowing that I had a camera. Or they grabbed my camera. I don't know which one it was, 
probably a camera because I'm not very techie. So that was a while ago. Yeah. So they grabbed my camera and they, um, before they put the coffin into, you know, it's above ground kind of, I don't even know what you call it. Like um, a mausoleum. Yes. Um, like a mausoleum. It's usually just like for one or two people, not like a big one. Um, they, they opened the coffin and they took a picture of the person. Yes. And they closed it back up. They literally stopped everything because they saw me and they knew I had a camera and they wanted to capture that moment. And then they handed me back the camera and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is like, I feel like I'm intruding, but I I think in reality, they just wanted to capture the last part of the spirit of this person before they bury them. So somewhere, and I have, often um, wanted to go back and look, but I just, I haven't because I just want to leave it where it's at, you know? Mm. (laughs) So Jamil, that that's for you. Yes. Yes. For you. So So we didn't, yeah, go ahead. So, you know, kind of moving on from death, Mm -hmm. but to (laughs) self-care. Okay. It's It's related. It's related. It's related. It's related. related. Mm -hmm. How do you practice? How do you manage? Okay, that's a good one. And we kind of, you know, just kind of went into midwifery and not nursing. But I think it's important if we can just bring back the nursing part because we started with it, but we may not end with it. Mm. But I think first of all, first and foremost, let me I want to just say like, we're, we're in a we're in healthcare professions right now that are experiencing severe burnout. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're looking at new um, nurses that are coming out that are being trained, it's really important to know that um, it's impossible to prevent burnout. I think it's impossible to prevent um, to prevent what is inevitable in the world of healthcare right now, and probably has been for a long time, but is even more exacerbated by things such as um, coming to light the two pandemics of COVID and racism. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I think it's important to to say just put that on the table first to say coming into these fields. It's, it's, I think it's not so much being able to prevent it, but being aware that you're almost being thrown into a fire right. and what you can do to kind of react to it. So that's, in, you know, in the context of self-care, um, I think it's important to know that. So I think self-care is, first of all, in, a, in awareness and an accountability of what you're doing, um, you know, in the fields that you're working and how you can support yourself and each other. So... For everybody, self-care is going to be very different. You know, I right. think um, I think that, you know, when you're coming, if you come from an, a, a family or an area where, you know, nursing or midwifery is, you know, kind of well known and you have people that you can connect with and link with that are also in those fields, mm. having that support is is probably the most important. Having that community is the most important part. Right. Similar to you and I with our dissertation work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you you sometimes feel completely alone, whether you're a nurse or a dissertation student. But with nursing and midwifery, you're experiencing um, sometimes an aloneness that's also filled with like all this extreme angst and exposure, like whether it's bacterial viral exposure, but also exposure to hostile environments or right. working environments that um, really have gotten worse because of, you know, people leaving the professions, Mm -hmm. um, staffing issues, you know, that, that creates, you know, more workload for the nurses, um, or the midwives and more patients 
to nurse, you know, care, the, the ratio. So what can you do for self-care? First of all, find your community. Like it's so important to find your community, especially if you're not the typical nurse, which is okay. The typical nurse picture. What do you see when you see a nurse? White lady, cis female, yeah. um, you know, um, hetero, um, yep. you know, completely bunny scrubs, clean <laughs> you know, no tattoos, etc. cetera. Uh, like yeah. that's, that's not the reality, nor should it have ever been the reality mm-hmm. because we need to match the people we take care of. We need to look like them. So it's, it's finding out who your people are that, that kind of are supportive for you and matching up with you and understanding that, you know, some of the intersections between those identities are, are not supported in the same way. So mm-hmm. fi- find your people, find the people that know what you're going through. There's no one that understands no one that understands the stress of working night shift, except for those that have worked night shift. Mm -hmm. No one. I don't care if you have a supposedly supportive partner or somebody who's like, I get it. You're leaving it at night. They don't feel what your body feels and they don't feel what your brain feels like having to work like night shifts or long hours or taking care of people that are dying or people that are hurting or people that are suffering. So finding people that know what you're um, going through is the most important part. There's no one that's more supportive to me than my fellow nurses or midwives that are like, yeah, we get it, you know, and often we are the ones that don't have the time to get together, (laughs) but having like some sort of texting community or, you know, going out and having social events every once in a while is really important, I think. Um, And then uh, obviously the, your own individual things that you love, whether it's exercise or yoga or meditation is, you know, is also is secondary. I think the social part is probably the most, most important part, at least for me, but yeah. Interesting. I feel like, you know, with, when it comes to self-care so often, and this is part of just like our memeified social media culture, it'd be like top 10 things to do, you know? Right, right, right. And it's like a prescriptive list. Like, meanwhile, some things like, are stressful for us, actually, you know, that's not not helpful for me to do number four on the list. Um, and I, I don't know that I've heard very often people talk about number one, is actually when we think about self care is to find your community. Yeah, that's a new one. That's a new one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it also, right, because, uh, you know, there can be a way that self care could serve to isolate, actually, because it's like, no, I have to carve out all this time to do my own individual self care activities. Um, when really what you need is to not be alone. Right. So, you know, sometimes aloneness is you need to, like I say, sure. sometimes I, I binge on some Netflix things to check out, like at the end of a day, at the end of a day of listening to 20 people mm-hmm. and, you know, all their woes and concerns and fears and anxiety and helping to educate them. Like the last thing I want to do is connect with anybody. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like I want to be disconnected from family, from friends, from whatever, for a little while. But at some point, that only goes so far. Mm-hmm. And connection with community, I think, especially if you're, you know, a nurse that doesn't meet all those, you know, stereotypes that we talk about, that even becomes much more important to be community connected. Mm. I think about folks who are going into um, n- nursing, but also other, I think this this conversation, frankly, applies to other what we think of as caring professions as well. Um, You know, teachers, for example, um, also experiencing a lot of burnout, but the, the folks who are going into those positions or into those fields, I think 
are often folks who we might call like selfless or who are really interested in helping other people. Um, and, and when we're talking about, I mean, obviously I know nurses are not all women, although I would assume the field is still predominantly so. Oh, it is. White and, women, predominantly. And we need diversity in nursing. We really need Amen. diversity Amen. in nursing. Amen. And, Amen. and men. Men are needed in nursing. Yeah. Oh, they're great. <laughs> Some of them are the best. Yeah. And, and also, like, folks who are going into that profession for a variety of reasons, I think, are looking to care for other people and leave themselves last. <sighs> you know? Right, right. And oh, then yeah. I also yeah. wonder, this is something I struggle with, actually, as a teacher. So I'm curious your take on this. Um, and you deal with this, uh, dealt with this as an RA, too. And when you're supporting a lot of people um, and you're dealing with a lot of their traumas, I mean, when you're, when you're nursing, you're literally dealing with also physical mm-hmm. traumas and suffering as well. Um, but how do you not like take that on, you know, especially when you've had a long shift, um, you're dealing with a lot of people in pain. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I'm sure any shift has its, you know, high moments and its low ones, but how do you, like does disconnect how do you not take all that on um how do you let that go and not internalize Uh, it yeah that's um the 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 correct answer is (laughs) the correct answer is that you leave it at the door like but how 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 do you leave it at the door um so you know what i think over the years it's impossible to completely unless you're not human it's impossible to completely Mm. disengage from other people's trauma and emotions and what you've experienced them go through. And it's impossible to do that because um, to completely, because you are out, you are first and foremost, if you're a, well, if you're a great nurse or healthcare provider, you're first and foremost going to be an advocate mm-hmm. and you can't completely strip all that, the, those things from you when you leave. But I think that you, I think that for me, I guess, I can't speak for other people, that for me, when I walk out the door, I think it's important to A, never go back to the computer to see what happened. Never go back and check in. Interesting. Check in a a few days later, but if you bring it home, you're still on the clock and you're still like, you know, worrying and like maybe anxious. Did something go okay? Did this go okay? Did I do this right? Um, we're always afraid of doing something wrong. I think especially nurses, like we're, we're trained to be perfectionists in a way. And and we have to, because we're, there's all this, these eyeballs on there. Did you do it correctly? You know, like, and you have to get hundred percent on the medical, um, you know, the medication quizzes and stuff. So, but I think not going back and, um, and looking to see what happened when you leave for that day, maybe a couple of days later, Hey, what happened to so-and-so? Um, it's important to just separate that out. And, you know, you go, you do your job, you do it well, you finish it and you walk out the door mm. and then you go back um, whenever you're meant to go back, you know, take vacations and don't think about, you know, what occurred, you know, on those vacations, just let yourself be yourself. But nurses and in, in healthcare providers are notoriously horrible at self-care. Maybe that's why we go into nursing because we are able to take care of other people better mm. than ourselves, mm. but notoriously not so great. And one of the things that we can always learn more and more and more about mm. and just realize that we're the same vulnerable people that the people we're taking care of are, but yes, there needs to be much more diversity in nursing and in healthcare, but um, it's, it's in midwifery too. It's very, it's, it's not diverse enough. We need to, take on identity. We need to have identities that are similar to the people that we're taking care of. Yep. 
We need to. It's the disparity is too huge. Mm. So I'm not giving you a great answer about self-care, but maybe that's because there isn't a perfect great answer. Mm. And I think that's authentic. And for the folks listening that may be entering this similar field, may get a better understanding about what to look for and how to navigate their feelings and experiences as they enter, hopefully, into decades-long career. Mm -hmm. So before we end this conversation, I definitely have to talk about home births. I love a good (laughs) home birth. Okay, okay, talk about home births. Now, see, (laughs) I did not think you were going to say that. (laughs) I know you did not. (laughs) So I am a proud uncle of four, as some of you may know. Just about five. Just listen, listen, and the numbers are climbing. The numbers are climbing. So very experienced. Of my nephews were born at home, one okay. in a um, in a birthing tub and one dry. Yes. When I mean to tell you, it's I, never I, dry, honey. Well, <laughs> I meant like out the tub, like you know, like out, like not in the water. <laughs> Call that a land birth. <laughs> yeah, just not in the water. Uh-huh. Um, beautiful, like candles lit, Beethoven playing, relaxful. Baby comes out. If someone hasn't seen a live birth, by the way, highly recommend. It was like a Lion King moment. Like, hi, ha, ha, home. It's a baby. It was beautiful. (laughs) Can we talk about the beauty of home births? Yes. Yes, we can talk about the beauty of home births. Well, obviously, you've already talked about the beauty of home births. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it could have been been said so poetically. So, you know, good for you. Um, I'm glad that you got to witness it. That is life-changing. Yes, twice, yes. You got to be a part of, you know, somebody's experiences that can be very transformative. So there's all this, you know, there's a lot of fear around home births because here we talk about the fear thing again. But the reality is, is that the statistics from home births show that home births are as safe or not, or possibly safer than hospital births. Mm. And some people are going to be like, like, what do you mean? That's not even possible. But a good home birth, a good, well-prepared-for home birth by people that are well-trained, that know what their scope of practice is, and they stay within that scope of practice, and they accurately assess, you know, those that are going to be involved in home birth, the person that will be delivering, if they assess their risk factors, and they determine that they are, you know, healthy, um, and not dealing with things such as, I'm having twins, Mm. Or I'm, I'm, I'm not having like high, high, high blood pressure or preeclampsia. If you honor the fact, if you choose, if you are selecting patients, moms, or, you know, birth people that are, are, are within the scope of low risk, then the process and the outcome, the outcomes are going to be much better. If you're intentionally as a home birth provider, midwife or whatever, taking on patients that are high risk, then you're you are risking, um, you're, you're taking on a whole big realm that is not safe. So it's all about having safe providers that are educated. They have a plan for transfer. If there is a risk that develops during the labor, mm-hmm. um, you know, baby's heart rate or a cord prolapse or, um, or something else that doesn't seem right. If you have a plan uh, of that transfer, then you no longer then have that home birth, you're transferring them in. So it's just, it's just important. It could be a very beautiful thing and it is a beautiful thing. Mm. And at one point in my career, I did have some home births. I've done births in hospitals and birth centers and at home. 
And you're right, home births can be very safe and they are under the right circumstances. Not everybody is a candidate for home birth. Mm. And that's the most important thing to remember. You know, one thing I have thought about in thinking about my um, incoming child is that one nice thing about a home birth is that, which we're not doing, but that you don't have to put a two-day-old child into a car seat. <laughs> and then oh, right, right, right. It's like, oh, that just seems <laughs> terrible. Um, no. And and how nice that you don't need to make that, what's a pretty big transition from hospital or birthing center back home. Right, right, right. That right. you're already sort of in that space and, and can transition from, you know, being pregnant to having a child in that in that space and not have to make, you know, major crosstown moves or huge environmental changes too. Yeah, it right. just seemed more relaxing than having all the beeping and the lighting and just being in your you own know, home and space. Right. The thing about hospitals is they're traumatic places for some people. Yes. They're traumatic places because of how they've been treated. People previously have been treated by healthcare providers or the institution, you know, biases and um, or, you know, trauma that they had related to loss or mm. violence. So it's a hospital isn't a safe place for everybody. Um, but it becomes a safe place for some people, you know, mm. so I think it's important to recognize that everybody should get to choose. They get to choose what they need for their birth experience. And also know that, you know, it's not everybody is a candidate and some people more than more people than not are candidates, huh. you know, but yes, yes. For some people. Well, Denise, we could literally talk to you all day. Yes. Literally. Literally. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have to let you go. But I'll just say that this has been such a delight and um, enlightening, as always. I mean, how many hours have we spent in conversation? And still, every time um, I learn something new. Same, 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 same. It's been lovely meeting you. It's been a pleasure. <sighs> Keep up the good work, you two. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, friend.